following radio programs are original broadcasts. While enhancements have been made to the audio for clarity and listener enjoyment, no other edits or modifications have been made. The listener may hear advertisements and notices for tobacco products, alcohol, food, and or services that may no longer be available, nor are they endorsed by whose blind life is it anyway. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Arts, the Afternoon Radio Theater Sunday, like an ice cream. This is Monica, and this is my technical guru, Victor. Hello. And we're happy to be with you on a Sunday afternoon. Um, here in Tennessee, it's raining. And uh, it's been raining all day and supposed to rain tomorrow and most of the week. So anyway, but it's been a nice. It's a good, good time for people to sit and listen. Yeah. So mm -hmm. um, just pull up your chair. Forget your golf clubs or your tennis rackets and and sit down and have a good time with us. But anyway, um. Wow, I lost my thought. Sorry, folks. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, we're we're coming to you from the Who's Blind Life Is It Anyway channel, and um, we hope you'll like us. Hit the like button, the subscribe button, hit your notification bell, whatever you got there, and uh, that way you'll know when we're coming up. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> You know, you've uh, heard me you say this spiel so many times, and you still don't have it down. Oh, I do it my way. It's what you told me to do. Do it my way. Oh, I did. But, I did say that. Yes. <laughs> and now you're laughing at me, and now I can't do it. Okay. But, uh, but anyway, if you don't like uh, YouTube, Facebook, or any of that, you can catch us on any of the podcasts, the, po the Apple podcast, Anchor podcast, Spotify podcast, um, QCast podcast, any old kind of podcast you want to catch us on. Um, so anyway, we're going to get to it. <laughs> He got me tickled, and now I can't think of anything I'm supposed to say. Uh, it's like I was telling, uh, I, I had a lady come by here earlier today, and I was telling her about the channel, and she asked me, you know, how we got in to, uh, uh, to do these casts and stuff, and I was telling her, and I started to tell her about StreamYard, and I could not, to save my life, think of StreamYard and I said I'll think of it after you lay after you leave and when I do I'll text it to you and that's what I had to do because I, I didn't think of it until after she left <laughs> <laughs> but Victor I'm glad I like you because if I didn't I'd kill you <laughs> I'm sure you would yes <laughs> you better be glad I don't mind getting laughed at <laughs> Uh, yes, <laughs> anyway, uh, I, th I think I've got a good lineup for you today. I've got something special. Um, I've got four programs. Um, this is not counting my strawberry and whipped cream on top. 
that's last. Um, so, uh, but what I've got for you is, it's called Crime Classics, and it's, it's true stories that have actually happened at some time in history. And oh, yeah. I just love them. And uh, I thought even Victor might like them. So I do. He does. Yeah. So, and I've heard some of these stories. And and I might give him some more of them if he behaves. Well. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll give them to him if he misbehaves. But you know, <laughs> depends on how he misbehaves. But anyway, we'll stop. Uh, so the first one that we're gonna play is um, on the buddy, uh, bloody, bloody, <laughs> bloody, bloody banks of Fall River. Have I got that right? Uh, Bloody Banks of Fall, of Fall River. River. Yeah. yeah, it's a New England uh, story. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's and uh, actually, what it's about, you, I don't know. You may have heard of Lizzie Borden, and she was supposed to have killed everybody in her family supposed at one time to have. or another. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so uh, you listen to this and see what you think, and I'll be back with you. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland with another true story of crime. Listen. That's a chicken. She's a fat one. She's doing practically all the things a chicken can do. And besides all this cleverness, she's about to perform her primary function. She's going to be a dinner. The lady who carries the bird in her left hand is named Abby Durfee Borden, stepmother to Emma and Lizzie Borden. Mrs. Borden weighs over 200 pounds. The curved-handled axe she holds in her right hand is her favorite when she goes out amongst the chickens. Her favorite because with it she does such a neat job, which is more than I can say for the person who murdered Mrs. Borden and her husband, Mr. Borden. So tonight, my report to you on... The Bloody, Bloody Banks of Fall River. Crime Classics. A new series of true crime stories from the records and newspapers of every land, from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Highland. The place is Fall River, Massachusetts, at the start of a hot August in 1892. In that era, it was a town whose dominant color was brown, the color of sun-dried lawns, of rain-stippled brick and board, of ladies' dresses that reached from neck to pavement. Next in popularity, as far as color went, was black. It was a stern time and a stern place, and bleak, where certain types of smiles were suspect and where women only dared to stretch in the privacy of kitchen or boudoir. It was a time, too, when 18 was the age of marriage, and a single woman of 32 had to find surcease in this way. Breaking saloon's windows. Knitting. Secretly tearing from the newspaper the latest picture of John L. Sullivan. Also, Jim Corbett, who was rumored to be more of a gentleman. Or this way. 
till death thy endless mercy seal. Lizzie Borden's way. And make the sacrifice complete. There, now. How did you like that hymn? Oh, very much, Reverend Job. And then I shall write my brother to send me the rest of the new ones from New York. I trust your judgment, Miss Borden, implicitly. How is your brother? Oh, he's getting married. Married? Didn't I tell you? No. No, you didn't. I'm sorry. I think, Reverend, you might have let me know in another way. Less blunt. But you don't even know my brother. I hope he'll be very happy. I'm sure you do. Reverend. Yes, Miss Lizzie. And how much longer will you grieve? Dear Miss Lizzie. Your wife is gone now for four years. Dear, dear Miss Lizzie. How kind is your concern? Still let me prove thy perfect will. My acts of faith, faith and, and love, love repeat. repeat. Till, Till death thy endless mercy seal. likes chicken, Lizzie. Chicken he shall get. Glad you came out to the backyard. You could do something for me besides picking pears from the tree. You're just jealous because you can't eat pears, Mrs. Borden, because you break out. Where you been, Lizzie? With the Reverend Mr. Jubb. He got some new hymns from New York. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Oh, if I was a true mother to you instead of a stepmother... I tell you right out, you're never going to get married, Lizzie. New hymns from New York, your work with the fruit and flower mission, none of these are going to help. If I was a true mother to you, I'd tell you all of those things, but tenderly. Yes, Mrs. Borden. And it eats inside you, doesn't it, stepdaughter? Yes, Mrs. Borden. You and your sister Emma, old maids. They say that about you. Did you know that? Yes. Yes, Mrs. Borden. Here. Least you can do is some work. You can pluck a chicken as well as anyone. Yeah, well, I do the other. Get used to being useful. That's a way to live, too. Take it. All right. Mrs. Borden? What is it? Aren't you concerned about yesterday? What about yesterday? About the barns being broken into. Some children, probably. Why should they break into the barn? Looking for iron for sinkers so they could fish. Not so delicate, Lizzie. You do it this way. 
This way. I told Mr. Jubb about the milk. What are you talking about? About the milk. What about it? You've been in this sun too long, Mrs. Borden. Burned your memory away. About the milk. It's being poisoned. <gasps> poisoned? Why else do you think everyone in the family got sick day before yesterday? You didn't. I don't drink milk. And the barn's being ransacked. There's someone who wants to do us harm. <laughs> Make your fancy, stepdaughter. Someone who hates my father. <laughs> your father said a man at the bank had cursed him. <laughs> father said he'd seen the man loitering about. Oh, now we've come to it, haven't we? What? Now we've brought the conversation around. What? Your father. Tell you something. He doesn't care for you. <laughs> he doesn't care for you at all. He loves me. Not at all. <gasps> What's the matter? Blood. All over my hands. Blood. Ooh, chicken blood. It'll wash off. That's the trouble with you, Lizzie. You shudder your ways. <sighs> what did you do that for? What did you smear that blood on my face for? To see how you look, Mrs. Borden. This is not exactly a healthy relationship between two grown people. But let's face it, the possibility of a lady's liking another lady in the Borden household was pretty remote. First of all... After the widowed Mr. Borden married Abby, he told his two daughters to do everything Abby told them. And often, Abby would order Lizzie to do things right in the middle of plucking a pear from the backyard tree. And Lizzie dearly loved the pears from the backyard tree. Also, it was a constant source of wild hilarity for Abby that neither of her stepdaughters had been taken as bride. She'd gotten married, but Lizzie never did. Nor Lizzie's sister, Emma. And sometimes Lizzie would go to her father's room and she'd ask him this. How can you stand her? She takes care of my needs. She cherishes me. She's a hulk. When seen through the eyes of affection... Oh, father. It's much too late to ask you to love her, Lizzie. But I insist that this kind of conversation concerning my wife shall be the last. Whatever you say, father. Now, it's very hot. I think I lie down. I'll take off your shoes. Never mind. I want to. Very well. Father. Yes? Tell me about my mother, my real mother. Oh, Lizzie, Please. it's been so Please. long. I've forgotten. You have not. Yes. Yes, I have. No. She was very lovely. She had brown hair. She had brown eyes, and she was slender. You used to tell me... Father... What? Why did you let her die? She had a sickness for you which... You let her die. You could have saved her and you let her die. Lizzie! And you married that Hulk. I forbid you... Father, Father, listen to I me. I forbid you to speak of my wife in such a manner. Let's go away from here, Father. Away? Yes, you and I. Give that woman this house and we'll go away. Father... You'll go away, not me. What? You speak often of quitting this house. I'm going to live with a friend. Do it. You can't mean that. Do it. Good night. Father. Father. 
I want you to know I always love you, no matter what you say to me. I know, and I'm sorry for you. Good night, Lizzie. the night of August 3rd in the year 1892, a stifling night, humid, sleepless, and filled with drone, a million small sounds continuous and insistent, made up of insects and dry grass and moist night clothes against moist bedding. And in the middle room of the second floor of number 92 Second Street, Lizzie Borden walked. And walked. And grew warmer and walked. Lizzie Borden wept. Her face pressed to the earth, she wept. And in a little while, for some reason or another, she got up and walked over to the pear tree and plucked a pear and ate it and smacked her lips, sweet with juice, at the moon. Lizzie Borden. Listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Hyland. This Saturday night, CBS Radio's Gangbusters presents the story of the Soda Fountain Pigeon. Also, Saturday nights on most of these same stations, don't miss the exciting adventures of United States Marshal Matt Dillon on Gunsmoke. Gangbusters and Gunsmoke, Saturday nights at the Star's Address, hear both for twice the excitement. And now, once again, Thomas Hyland in the second act of Crime Classics. And his report to you on the bloody, bloody banks of Fall River. I'd like to give you a brief rundown on the Borden family. Let's pick the last day all of them were alive, August 4th, 1892. Let's say about 7 o'clock in the morning. Andrew Jackson Borden, yawning. A.J. Borden is the head of the house and worth over a quarter of a million dollars. He's getting up now and getting ready to go to the bank so he can be near some of it. Lace me up, Andrew. Abby Durfee Borden, just before lacing up. Abby is 64 years of age and hadn't gone downstairs without a corset since the age of 15. Lizzie Borden, still asleep. Night clothes on the chair where she left them last night. And dreamless. Woman in bed. 
There are two other people I must mention. There's Bridget Sullivan, the maid who is making the mutton soup for breakfast, and Emma Borden, sister to Lizzie, who's off on a trip to Fairhaven. We know that the Bordens, all of them, had their breakfast. We know that Mr. Borden left the house at 9 o'clock for the bank. And we know that Bridget washed the windows in the attic. And we know that as Bridget sat on the windowsill, washing in such a way that a good part of her was hanging over 2nd Street, Lizzie Borden was inside holding her feet so Bridget wouldn't fall. And we know, too, that there was conversation. I don't feel so good. Why? What's the matter? My stomach still hurts when I press it. It's from the other day. When the milk was poisoned? No, I don't think it was the milk. It was the bananas. I think Mrs. Borden fried them too long. And I always say that bananas fried too long in mutton soup don't go well together. Oh, help me inside, Lizzie. Here. Press me. Here. Oh! You see? Then you should lie down, Bridget, and sleep. If I could, I would... I got these windows to do. You just lie down here in your room and sleep. Oh, but... Oh, you do what I tell you. If you mean it, there's nothing I'd like better. I mean it. I'd better inform Mrs. Borden where I'll be. No. I'd better? No. Mrs. Borden is going out soon. Going out? She didn't tell me she was going out. A messenger brought a note that a friend of hers was sick. Oh, that's a shame. What friend? Oh, I don't know. But Mrs. Borden is getting dressed to sit with her. You really mean it, Miss Lizzie, about me laying down right now and napping? I really do. Here. I'll turn down your bedclothes. In. In with you. Now you just go to sleep. Saying that to Bridget. Right to sleep. Saying a thing like that was like putting chloroform under Bridget's nose. She was a snoozer, that one. When she worked, she worked, but get her on a feather bed. Good night, all. Off she went. Lizzie tucked her in and watched over her for a few minutes, and then Lizzie went downstairs and into the guest room. Hello, Mrs. Borden. What do you want, Lizzie? I thought you'd gone out. What made you think that? Oh, I just thought so. And now what do you want? What are you doing in this room, Mrs. Borden? And why shouldn't I be here? Well, Bridget could make up the guest room. You don't have You to... know very well Bridget is not allowed to clean any of the rooms on the second floor. Oh, yes, I... But father's coming home. That's strange. The side door's locked. He can't get in. It's never locked this time of day. Hurry! Just a minute! you got a key? Why is the side door locked? I don't know. Haven't you got a key? No. Come down and open the door. But try the front one. All right. Wait a minute. It's locked. I'll send Lizzie down. Go down and open the door for your father. A vacuum in time. Here is where truth ends and knowledge. On August the 4th, 1892, at number 92 Second Street in the town of Fall River, Massachusetts, the time between 10 and 11.15 a.m. is lost. Lost, 
That's the only word for it. Wrenched somehow out of the rest of time and lost. And started again when that happened. When that was spoken. Did you call me, Miss Lizzie? Come downstairs, quickly! Someone came into the house and murdered Father! What? What did you say? Someone has murdered Father! Murdered him? With an axe. No, no, don't go in there. Go across the street and get Dr. Brown. Quickly! Mrs. Churchill! Mrs. Churchill! Please, come over. Someone has hit Father with an axe and killed him. Come in through the front door. It's open. Father, in the sitting room, on the sofa. Come. You see? Oh, you'd better call for Mr. Harrington of the police. Yes? Who's that? It's me. It's Bridget. Dr. Bowen will be over. May I say something? Of course. Mr. Harrington of the police should know about this. Uh, perhaps Mrs. Borton should know of this first. She's not here. She's out on a sick call. Where is everybody? Oh, in here, Dr. Bowen, in the sitting room. Your father is quite dead, my dear. Yes. I suggest you so inform the police. Inform Mr. Harrington. I'll see to it. You're very kind. This next will be pretty hard to take, but you just have to believe it. I've got the records right here to prove it. Not only was Mr. Harrington not to be found, but there was hardly any cop at all in Fall River. At this very moment, most of them were taking part in the annual excursion of the Fall River Police Association at a shore resort at Rocky Point, which is near Providence, Rhode Island. So, even as Mrs. Churchill was yelling her lungs out for a policeman, they were running sack races, splitting up into quartets for singing purposes, and the more athletic were getting their mustaches wet in the Atlantic Ocean. However, a Marshal Hilliard, who had gotten up too late to meet the trolley, which met the excursion train was sulking around town, and he's the one Mrs. Churchill spotted. She brought him back to number 92 Second Street. Here, the marshal viewed the body, gave condolences to Lizzie, and set about looking for clues. During his search, Mrs. Churchill made a remarkable discovery. Lizzie? Yes, Mrs. Churchill? I've just been up on the second floor. Yes. Your mother's up there. She's not my mother. She's my stepmother. She's dead. She's my stepmother. It looks like somebody took an axe and... Well, she's dead. It was quite a troop who went upstairs to look in on Mrs. Abby Borden. 
There was Lizzie and Bridget and Marshall Hilliard. Then there was Mrs. Russell and Mrs. Bowen and several other ladies who happened in off the street. Then there was Dr. Bowen, and in a little while, the Reverend Mr. Jubb happened in. The latter was the kindest of all to Lizzie. Finally, toward dusk, Mr. Harrington did appear. Sun-tanned and sandy, and with both his striped bathing suits folded neatly in a strong brown paper. He took charge, and he asked Lizzie where her sister was. In Fairhaven, doing work for the Fruit and Flower Mission. Had her sister been there at the time her mother was murdered? She's not my mother. She's my stepmother. Very well, but where were you, Lizzie Borden? In the barn, getting a piece of iron. For what? Sinkers for my fishing. The whole morning? And in the garden. How did you happen to find your father dead? I was bringing him a pair. And the doctor? I would say your father was killed an hour and a half after your mother. What about that, Lizzie Borden? She's not my mother. She's my stepmother. Who do you think killed them, then? The same man who poisoned the milk. The same man who broke into the barn. The same man who my father saw loitering. Don't you think it's strange that Bridget was asleep and your sister out of town and you out in the garden, all of you out of the way for one hour and a half while your parents are murdered? Mrs. Borden cannot rightly be called a parent of mine. And these were the questions asked. And these the answers. Harrington asked them. The coroner asked them. The prosecuting attorney asked them. Yes, indeed, Lizzie was tried for murder, so there was a prosecuting attorney, and he asked them. These questions and a lot more. The trial lasted 13 days, and Lizzie Borden was adjudged not guilty. So, if Lizzie Borden was declared not guilty, we must assume this is the way our unknown murderer operated. Hot day on a busy street in Fall River. Murderer walking down it, carrying axe. Mrs. Borden disposed of. Wait one hour and a half. Then... Mr. Borden. Then... with blood, carrying a bloody axe, and no one noticed him. Or they'd go yelling for Mr. Harrington. No one did. So the murderer was never found. And Lizzie? She never married. She embraced other things. Till death Thy endless mercies seal. And make the sacrifice complete.
Amen. just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about our next crime classic. Fall River, tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. In tonight's story, Irene Tedrow was heard as Lizzie Borden. Featured in the cast were Jeanette Nolan, Betty Harford, Sarah Selby, Herb Butterfield, William Johnstone, and Paul Fries. Bob Lamont speaking. And here again is Thomas Highland. Next week, Rudgley, England, in the year 1855, and a brilliant young medical man whose hobby was dead people and live racehorses. My report to you will be on The Hangman and William Palmer. Who won? Thank you. Good night. Tomorrow night, Van Johnson stars in the Thursday theater production of The Old Man's Bride. It's a modern John Alden romance with loads of surprises, as the man sent to fetch a bride for another learns plenty from a latter-day Priscilla with a strong mind of her own. It's the Thursday theater presented by CBS Radio tomorrow night on most of these same stations. Thursday nights, Marlena Dietrich stars in Time for Love on the CBS Radio Network. That story brings chill bumps down my spine every time I hear it. Uh, you know, she had... I would have hated to have had a father like that. It's like he, just because he remarried, it's like he had no feeling for his daughters. Um, and, of course, the stepmother, she was just horrible. I mean, not that Lizzie was a prize herself, but you can kind of see why she was resentful and hurt. And, you know, back then you didn't have therapists and all that stuff. So um, she really couldn't get help but of course that's no excuse for her to kill but and you know of course they they found no real proof uh but heck you know she got you know she did it <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. but uh, uh what do you think victor well i mean i want to correct something you just said i mean back then there were therapists <clears throat> excuse me but not like today psychiatric therapists but they weren't abundant no yeah i mean you did have psychiatrists but mm -hmm. they didn't know what they claimed to know today <laughs> yeah exactly i mean they at that point they still believed that uh orgasms could cure schizophrenia well they cured mine 
<laughs> you mean they didn't carry yours? No, they did not. <laughs> oh, well, heck, <laughs> I guess you're just special that way, aren't you? <laughs> I guess so, yes. Or am I special that way? Oh, Who the well. heck knows? <laughs> um, but anyway, um, that brings me to something I wanted to tell y'all about. Um, there is, if you like old radio as much as I do, there is an app in the iPhone app store, and it may be in the uh, Android Play store as well. I don't know because I don't have an Android phone, but it's called dumb.com old radio shows. Uh, it, that's D-U-M dot com. And it's very accessible and they have a ton of shows in there and they're all categorized and everything. So um, anyway, if you lose it, you can um, write to me, coffeegal62 at gmail and I'll tell you or you can Twitter me at Moni60, M-O-N-N-I-6-0. And um, I'd love to hear your comments and feedback because that'll help me to know what uh, y'all want to hear. But that's dumb.com, old radio shows. Uh, anyway, the next one um, that we're going to do is uh, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and its crime classics as well. So I hope y'all enjoy it. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland with another true story of crime. Listen. This is a dream. This is a portent. This is the shape of things to come. A man dreams of walking down a vaulted and empty corridor. Soldier. Soldier. Sir? Who lies dead here? Look for yourself, sir. Do you see who it is, sir? Yes. Who is it? It is I. Tonight, my report to you on the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Crime Classics. A series of true crime stories from the records and newspapers of every land from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Highland. It was April in 1865, and it was Washington, D.C. A hero had come into the city. His name was Grant a general of the time who, a few days before, had accepted surrender from another general of the time whose name was Lee. So it was a time of victory celebration, of burning candles for prayer and illumination and thanksgiving, of dancing in the streets, of noises and silences, 
of reunion, of shrill, of tears. The sounds that mankind makes when something is won or lost forever. Or returns. Or perishes. That was the sound John F. Parker made as he throws a whiskey bottle against the wall of the room. His friend was happy, too. Open another bottle, please. Force of Washington, the District of Columbia. John F. Parker, a rum pot. He was about 35 years old and he was married, and the laughing lady you just heard was not his wife. He had been in the Union Army for a little while, but was dismissed from it for the good of the war effort. His record shows that he couldn't hold an assignment to any one beat for any length of time, for reasons ranging from sleeping in an alley on his beat or sleeping in a doorway on his beat. This is a man who was assigned to guard President Lincoln. How did this happen? Simply, Mrs. Lincoln wrote a note. To Provost Marshal James R. O'Bairn, this is to certify that John F. Parker, a member of the Metropolitan Police, has been detailed for duty at the executive mansion by order of Mrs. Lincoln. Why did Mrs. Lincoln write such a note? No one ever asked her, so I can't say. But we know that John F. Parker, more or less sober, appeared at the White House, and he and Mrs. Lincoln had a small chat. There are rumors, of course, Mr. Parker. You must have heard them. Rumors, ma'am? About Mr. Lincoln. About Mr. Lincoln, ma'am? That there are conspirators, and attempts will be made on his life. Yes, ma'am. Uh, ma'am? Yes, Mr. Parker? May I ask a question? Of course. Why was I selected the bodyguard, Mr. Lincoln? Because... Mary... Mary, prevail upon him. Prevail upon him. Now, what's the matter, Mr. Lincoln? General Grant here. He's changed his mind. That's right, Mrs. Lincoln, I have. Prevail upon him, Mary. Oh, but surely, General, the people are expecting you. All over Washington, they expect an appearance from you, and it's the theater tonight. It's impossible. But suddenly you tell us it's impossible. Why? I'm going home. I'm going to Burlington. But tomorrow you can go to Burlington. Tonight. General. Ma'am? Even the newspapers headline your name above Mr. Lincoln's. Surely, for such a privilege, you would not be supported. I've been long from home, ma'am. Yes. Yes, you have. Goodbye, Mrs. Lincoln. Mr. Lincoln. Yes. Goodbye. Goodbye. It troubles me. 
fucked us. So suddenly he changed his mind. Strangeness is... Mr. Lincoln. Yes, Mary. This is your guard. His name is John Parker. How do you do, sir? Mr. President. I did not wish to appear rude, sir. In truth, I did not see you. This... uh, You may go, Mr. Parker. Mary. What if he won't go to the theater with us? What matter? We'll ask that young couple, that Major... Major Rathbone you seem so at ease with. We'll... Uh, What is it, Mr. Lincoln? Melancholy. One sin. The infinite sadness. There's victory now. No. No, listen. You should know it. What has lain against me for a week now. Chill and dread. And I fear it. What are you trying to say? I dreamed. And now I must tell you of it. Or I can no longer bear the coldness and heaviness of it. I dreamed. And this is what it was. There seemed to be a death-like stillness about me. Then I heard subdued sobs as if a person were weeping. I thought I left my bed and wandered downstairs. There the silence was broken by the same pitiful sobbing. But the mourner wasn't visible. I arrived at the East Room, which I entered... There I met with a sickening surprise. Before me was a catafalque on which rested a corpse wrapped in funeral vestments. Around it were stationed soldiers who were acting as guards. Who lies dead here, I asked one of them. He bade me look for myself. And I did. And I saw that it was I who lay there. Dead by an assassin. Mary. You should not have told me of it. Mary, Mary, Mary. You should not have told me of it. Famous man you be. Nah, Mary. And we'll drink to Bartender. Hand us back the bottle. Ah, poor me famous man. <laughs> I will. It's such a toast. It's nothing but another duty. To guard a president. Now we'll drink to it. Everybody! Everybody! Shush, you, Millie. John here is going to guard the president. You just sit down, Millie, and shut up. Oh, no. Just drink and shut up. No. John? What do you want? How come I saw in the paper what I did? What are you talking about? Today in the newspaper. About what? A report on the telegraph that was in the paper. A newspaper in New York had it that Mr. Lincoln was murdered. He was murdered yesterday. What? It's the truth. What it said right in the newspaper, the president had been assassinated. Ah, that's crazy. Well, I saw it. You get a newspaper. You'll see it, too. Mischief. That's what it is. Drink your drink. But it was true. Several newspapers in different sections of the country had it that Mr. Lincoln had been slain, which, of course, was not so. This was late afternoon of April 14th, and Mr. Lincoln was alive. 
spending time with Mr. Stanton, his secretary of war, then with his valet who attended him while he dressed, then with Mrs. Lincoln. Mr. Lincoln was alive and in good mood. How nice you look, Mary. Thank you, Mr. Lincoln. Uh, the carriage is waiting. And Major Rathbun and his fiancée? At Senator Harris's home. He'll pick them up. The young lady is very comely. Yes. We'll be late. My arm. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Parker, sir. Mr. Parker. The driver knows where to go, does he not? Ford's Theater. Ford's Theater. the theater, it drizzled a little, then stopped. And all over Washington, tens of thousands of candles burned. Backdrop for victory, for celebration, for remembrance. Backdrop for tears. I'd like to speak to you briefly about what I consider to be a fairly uninteresting play. It's called Our American Cousin, a drama in three acts by Tom Taylor. There were characters in it with such names as Lord Dundreary, Captain De Boots, Mr. Buddycombe, and Mrs. Mount Chesington. I would like to give you an example of the kind of entertainment the play provided. One of the ladies says... Why, Papa, it's a letter from my dear brother Ned. He writes from Brattleboro, Vermont, that he's quite well and just come in from a shooting excursion with a party of crows. Splendid fellow, six feet high. And Lord Nundreary answers to the effect that he is amazed to hear of birds six feet high, that they must be tremendous animals indeed. And the actress answers... Oh, I see what my brother means. A tribe of engines called crows, not birds. Now, that's not very sparkling, is it? But this is the play that the president elected to see on the night of April 14, 1865. When he entered the theater with his party, Laura Keene, the actress playing the part of Florence Trenchard, was speaking her lines in an early scene of Act One. Thank you, Mr. Ford. We are always delighted to be guests of your theater. Thank you very much, Mr. Ford. I'll take care of the president, the major, and the ladies. Where will you sit, Mr. Parker? There's a chair out here in the hall for me. You won't want that call, please. Will you? Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. You sit there in the rocker, Mr. President. Mrs. Lincoln, the Major, and you, lady. Right there. And if anybody wants anything, I'll be right outside in the hall. I thought I could catch him before I reached the house. So off I started. I 
Now, John Parker was a fidgety man, and he knew it. So, to soothe the fidgets, he had a bottle tucked away. It was a dull evening, and John Parker never liked plays anyhow. Just sit. The drone of the play. Walk around a little. Notice that a peephole had been bored into the door of the president's box. And not wonder why. Nor wonder why no other boxes were occupied. Just other people enjoying themselves. Not him. Because it was dreary and his bottle was empty. I would like to say that five years later, John Parker was fired from the police for falling asleep under a lamppost. Not for leaving the president unguarded, which he did this night. Left the president and went to the bar across the street. What will you have, sir? Whiskey. And oysters, dozen. Yes, sir. Uh, Blue Point? Ah, Blue Point. Marky, I'll be with you. Not in a minute. Immediately. What about my oysters? Uh, just a second, sir. What can I do for you, Mr. Booth? Brandy. Oh, there's a... Now. now. Here's your money. The change is yours, Barkeep. Thank you, Mr. Booth. John Wilkes Booth was 27 years old. He was an actor, had achieved some success in Shakespearean roles. A handsome man, a darling of women, a man who sported black flowing ties and an Inverness cape and an ivory-headed cane. It is interesting to note that he had been a member of the Virginia Regiment, which captured and executed John Brown. It is interesting to note, too, that his father, who was Junius Brutus Booth, was insane. John Wilkes Booth just passed John Parker and went out of the bar and into the street and walked south for four blocks to a livery stable. Here, two men waited for him. Mr. Booth, I thought you wouldn't get here. Whose name was Louis Payne. I knew he'd get here. Him. Whose name was George E. Atzerodt. Him. Can't stop him. Not John Wilkes, nobody can. How does it go, gentlemen? Are we ready? Not him. (laughs) Not him, Mr. Booth. What is this? He's not going. <laughs> Shut up. I'll kill him if you say the word, Mr. Booth. He'll stop. Just leave him alone. He'll stop. He told me just a moment ago. He said he's not going through with it. Yes, he will. I'll kill him if you want me to. Don't lust too much for killing, Mr. Payne. Kill those who need it. Only those. Uh, not that I'm afraid, me. No, no. Just no. excited, is that it? Not going. Not going. That's your word. You see? Silence, Mr. Payne. He'll ruin all of it, little man. (laughs) Little man, you would, too. You'd ruin all of it. You know what you have to do. Have to. Ask you? No, 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 no. Ask him why. Ask Mr. Payne. Mr. Payne? But he's got no reasons. Ask him why. Little man. Why? Say, do you? I am at the Kirkwood house. You know, near the man. Near the vice president. Near Andrew Johnson. Yes. Near. I see him. Uh, knife and gun I have. Here. Here. And in the room. In in the place. Uh, 
hit on the door. Uh, and when he opened it, the door showed him. Do it. Or oh, the knife. Or the... Mm, no, no, I can't. Of course you can. In my head, I see me doing that to him, and I can't. Of course you can. No, yeah, you no. see, little man. Yeah, no. Listen to him, little man. Yeah, no. He's mad. No, I... As each of us is mad, Mr. Payne. Madness suckles us, and the warmth of it goes down easily. You are mad, and I... And the little man. <laughs> and he, most honestly, the little man. Are you trying to say that... You are insane too, Mr. Payne. Is there doubt of it? You are sworn to kill this night, Mr. Seward, Secretary of State to this country of evil men. And he... Little man, <laughs> tonight you will be a hero. And listen, little man, when it is done, when Andrew Johnson is dead, I will give you a present... A thing that sparkles and shines. And you will love it. Will it be round? Round. And you will do what I tell you to do. <laughs> you see, Mr. Payne? Of course you do. Will it be wasted upon the two of you if I say... We lie deep in fair darkness. Yet, at our side, glory. Go. Do what you must. And each of them took a horse from the stable and rode away. This little man, George Atzerodt, became confused and just rode to exhaustion. And he did not kill. And Mr. Payne, he entered the home of Mr. Seward and fractured the skull of Mr. Seward's son. And cut the throat of Mr. Seward. So it was feared for a time he would die. And John Wilkes Booth, he rode... Toward the theater. And a block from it. In a shadow pool that edged the fall of light from a street lamp, Anna Surratt waited there. John Wilkes. Yes? Now the time has come. Now what you're going to do will be done. Yes. You on your horse there. And the fever in your heart to do this thing. I cannot tell you now again not to do this thing. No. A burning. Yes. A hating. Yes. How do these things find place among all the tenderness of you? I wish I knew, but I cannot. No. Oh, I love you. And now only a small way more, one block more, and John Wilkes Booth rode it. And John Parker, bodyguard to the President of the United States, he was still in the same bar where we left him, choking down another tumbler of whiskey, drinking his way into history's oblivion. Then Booth was at the theater.
large treasure. Ah, leave it alone now. You just burned up for <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. In tonight's story, Herb Butterfield was heard as Lincoln, Jack Edwards as John Wilkes Booth, and Clayton Post as John Parker. Featured in the cast were Irene Tedrow, William Conrad, Mary Jane Croft, Betty Lou Gerson, Sammy Hill, Barney Phillips, Roy Glenn, and Junius Matthews. Bob Lamont speaking. Wow. I wish they had had a different Mary Todd Lincoln. I'd Somehow I just didn't like her portraying her, but I mean, it had her sounding kind of like an old woman. Yes, she did. And Lincoln, he was kind of solemn too, but from everything I've read about Lincoln, he was a kind of a solemn, quiet guy. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm listening to these things and they sound a lot like today's podcasts. Yeah, they do. I mean, uh, I, I hadn't thought of it, but they do. Yeah. I mean, uh, if I didn't know any better, I'd swear I was watching or listening to a podcast on ACB radio or one of those other places. You are, except you're watching it. <laughs> yes. Well. <laughs> oh. Well, watching is a strong word, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, sure is. Um, but anyway. Um, this next one coming up, it's not one of my favorites, but it's an okay one, and I thought some of y'all might like it, so I, uh, so I picked it. And um, the the Alsop, Alsop family and how they diminished and how they replenished or something like that. What's the name of it? How <laughs> okay. they diminished, diminished and grew. grew. Okay, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, I'll be excited to hear what you think and here Good we evening. go this is crime classics i am thomas highland with another true story of crime listen oh i think i forgot to This is a dream. This is a portent. This is the shape of things to come. A man dreams of walking down a vaulted and empty corridor. Soldier. Soldier. Sir? Who lies dead here? Look for yourself, sir. Do you see who it is, sir? 
Yes. Who is it? It is I. Tonight, my report to you on the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Crime Classics, a series of true crime stories from the records and newspapers of every land from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Highland. It was April in 1865. And it was Washington, D.C. A hero had come into the city. His name was Grant, a general of the time who, a few days before, had accepted surrender from another general of the time, whose name was Lee. So it was a time of victory celebration, of burning candles for prayer and illumination and thanksgiving, of dancing in the streets, of noises and silences, of reunion, of shrill. Sorry, folks. I don't know how that uh, happened. Um, it was supposed to be the Alsop family, but for some reason, the audio got changed on me. So, um, do you want to pick another one, Monica? Okay. Uh, I'll pick the other one. Um, we'll, we'll choose the interesting one of, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do this one. If a body needs a body, just call Burke and Hare. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland with another true story of crime. Listen. That's the way a room sounds. A particular room in a narrow street in Edinburgh, Scotland. Someplace on the wall there was a drip. When the room was still, when there was a lodger in it, asleep, that was the sound. But listen again. That's the way it sounded when it rained, because the room was just below gutter level, and the rainwater rushed by the room's only window. Many lodgers caught cold in this room. They were lucky. Many other lodgers wound up on a dissecting table. They were murdered by Mr. Burke, who smothered, by Mr. Hare, who held. So tonight, my report to you, if a body need a body, just call Burke and Hare. Crime Classics. A series of true crime stories from the records and newspapers of every land from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Highland. A city famous for lassies, laddies, people coming through the rye, scotch, kilties, and medical schools. 
It is this last I'd like to speak a word about. Now, when a student entered medical school, he studied anatomy right off. No Roman in the gloaming. And her school cut up a cadaver. Except there weren't enough cadavers. Executed criminals were the only legitimate source of supply. Therefore, a new occupation sprang up and flourished. Grave snatching. Piecework in corpses. Rob a grave of its contents and sell it to science. Yet, the supply didn't meet the demand. So, as in every profession, there were those who looked for shortcuts. Burke and Hare came up with one. They owned that room I told you about. A room in Tanner's Close. I'm tired of waiting for him to die, Burke. Go look at him. Yes. I can't tell whether he's breathing or not. The old man's so skinny, so sick. Here if his heart beats. It beats. Such a skinny man. Such a sick, skinny man. Such a sick, skinny old man. And he will not die. Burke. Aye? The other who sought lodging here and who died brought us eight pounds. Aye. This one? Aye. He's older than the last. Dr. Knox will not be happy of him. However, we should not accept less than eight pounds. Aye. Hair. Is there more whiskey hair? Nor food. Uh, Nothing. Nothing save an old, sick, skinny man who takes space and will not die. It's so cold. So cold. Oh, my hands be numb. Whiskey would warm them from the fingertips. From the fingertips... Hair. Aye? Hair. Say it, man. If this old man were to die this minute... If we were to stuff him in the tea chest this minute... And walk with him to the anatomy laboratory of Dr. Knox... And Dr. Knox pays upon delivery... We would have whiskey in a half hour from now. That is, if this old man were to die this minute... But that would be murder. Tood. Have you ever done a thing like that? No, 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 no. Such an old man. To lie sick. To suffer in a cold room. Wet room. No family to give him comfort. Ah, poor old man. Burke. Aye? To kill him would be to bruise him. Dr. Knox perhaps would not accept a corpse unprettied by bruises. However. What? However, if I... If I put my hand over his nose and mouth like this... Jamie, it's such a time like... Oh, such a time to come. He's gone. Hold his feet here so he'll not kick. I'd like that. Is he dead? I'll listen to his heart. Is he dead? Is he dead? Is he dead?
my lecturing gentleman. To insist upon it, I, I say... Suggest... Enough words, Dr. Knox. Take a look. Hmm? Now, was it worth calling you away for, Doctor? Half hour dead, I'd say. Less, wouldn't you say, Hare? Oh, I'd say it was worth more than eight pounds. Fine specimen. Fresh. Ten pounds. I'm not a quibbler, gentlemen. As a matter of fact, I'm on record as saying that quibbling is a... The lecture's in the other room, Doctor. Uh, Just give us the tenor. Certainly. Here. Thank you. Mm. Two bodies in a week, gentlemen. Basis for an acquaintanceship, do you know, think... Therefore, if I might make a suggestion. Suggest away. Two bodies in a week, both male. My students, when they will become physicians, will be called upon to administer to both sexes. Therefore, you want a lady. Good day, gentlemen. I must back to my students. Dr. Knox had more students than anybody. He was much admired in the city of Edinburgh, a man of culture and wit and an excellent surgeon. A democratic man, he got along as well with the aristocracy of the city as with its murderers. A proof? Ain't that Dr. Knox a nice gent, hey? A ruggy boo. A danny man. <laughs> proof, as furnished by Burke and Hare. Two fellows with ten, uh, less what they paid for a bottle. He said he wanted a lady. Have a drink. I... A real ruggy boo, that Dr. Knox. Rick. And arm in arm, they walked through the slums of Edinburgh. And they looked fine against this background. Rags, bones, catskin. Human hair. Rags and bones and catskin and human hair and cast-off shoes. Trinkets and fish heads. Second-hand goods pervade to people who are dying the instant they were born. Stalls of tatters, shops of fragments and shame, alleys and filth, ten years old. And through it, chameleons, Burke and Hare. Have a drink, Mr. Hare. (laughs) Have a drink. Hi, Jimmy. Hi, lad. Have a drink. Oh, no. Here's a coin, lad. Thank you. You got a song I can sing for you? Oh, have a drink, lad. Oh, no, sir, Mr. Burke. Oh, no, sir, Mr. Burke. <laughs> like an angel, he says. <laughs> angel with cheek like down between my fingers. Have a drink. <laughs> no, sir. No, you run. Give the coin to your mother, boy. Thank you. Come along, Hare. I... Uh, I was saying, Hare... About Dr. Knox, you were saying. Aye. What his lack was. What he said he's needing. Have a drink. Hey, there's no more in it, Hare. <laughs> Ain't me wanting a drink. Aye, there's a place. Aye. Aye, barman, a butler of your finest. Aye, that's the word, barman, the finest. 
the finest for Burke and Hare. <laughs> uh, have a drink, Mr. Hare. Uh, yeah. mm. uh, have a drink, Burke. Hey, Billy Burke! Mary, Mary, Mary. A lady. Such as ladies are in this corner of Edinburgh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing. Tell me a one so I can do a laughing too. A fable, Mary. Pretty Mary. Bonnie Mary. And not for your ears. In what of my ears? Oh, dainty and little pearl shells. <laughs> hey, give us a kiss. Uh, give us a copper. Good, Mary. Yeah, have a copper, Mary. Give us a kiss, Mary. Uh, a bargain's a bargain. Ain't it? Such pretty shoulders on you. What'd you say? Uh, such pretty shoulders. Uh, you're a darling. Now, is it true Mary was painted by an artist? Uh, true. A dolly lad with a beard. A tickling beard. Yeah. <laughs> I, Mary. That's a copper. You need lodgings tonight, Mary. Aye. One more copper and I can pay for it. Well, I got a clean room, a lodgings room. Next to McCobbin's shop, I got one. Aye, I've heard. And, and from the looks of your shoes, Mary, you could stand some cobbling. Uh, with what money? For free. Now, ain't them pretty words, Mary? For free. <laughs> for free. Cobbling for your pretty feeties. And, 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 and a clean bed. Now, come along, Mary. What trick? Come along, Mary. Is it a trick? Now, come along, Mary. You wouldn't have played a trick, would you? <laughs> you just come along. Oh, very well. Patterson went to the room under the gutter, and Mary took off her shoes to cobble, <laughs> and she lay down in bed to sleep. Ah, she was very beautiful. You are listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Hyland. The fighting in Korea has stopped, but the nation's need for blood donors goes on. If you've given blood, don't lose interest now. During peacetime, America has its chance to build vital blood reserves to the point where no emergency, whatever its magnitude, catches us unprepared. Give blood regularly, the painless way to be prepared. Call your local Red Cross chapter or local hospital blood bank for an appointment. And now, once again, Thomas Highland and the second act of Crime Classics. And his report to you on If a Body Need a Body, Just Call Burke and Hare. Of 
1826, Edinburgh was a talk again about the latest appearance of the Loch Ness Monster. And speaking of lochs, Edinburgh was also a talk about the Loch Fenwick Imbroglio, whereby Sir Angus McDermott was stripped of his tartan and forced to flee with his six sons to the Netherlands, where they were received with snickers by the populace. Having been thus rocked, Edinburgh was little prepared for what was in store. For in Tanner's Close, a street that spilled into a pigsty, there lived two men. As sure as my name is Billy Burke, she's a pretty. And Billy Burke's friend, Billy Hare. Aye, and a bonny sleeper. Aye. Hold, hold her. Is she dead? Is she dead? I. Is she dead? I said I. Tell me, is she? What's gotten to you, man? Such a bonny sleeper. So. Why must I slap you so, man? Tell me a thing, Burke. Aye. That pretty thing. Is she dead? I said it. Now what's gotten to you? Tell me, tell me, tell me. Didn't you feel the slaps, man? Oh. Well, what is it? Oh. She be dead. Aye, she'll fetch 20 pounds in a dead market. Aye. Now give us a hand. What? What did you do to her? Hair! Uh, Billy, hair, what? Oh. Hair! Oh. Oh, the thing you did to her. That's the gutter right above the only window in the room. Then... Carrying her in this rain. Let's wait a bit. Maybe it'll stop. And they sat there, the two of them, their presence making complete the nightmare scene. The room of moistened shadows, of a girl dead, of a heaping of rags in the corner, clothes of two others who had died there. And outside, the thin yelping... And outside, the thin hand still outstretched. I need out of here, Burke. I? I need out of here, Burke. Fetch the tea chest. I need out of here, Burke. I. I, lad. that you invited me for tea, Dr. Knox. 
a ritual, sir. To all who come to me to learn. I, um, I like to get to know my young doctors. <laughs> no doctor yet. Uh, but as good as one. It is said from London north to here, in all of the cities, there is no greater teacher in the field of anatomical study than you, sir. I see that. Wherever doctors gather, those who have studied with you are assured of a future. Uh, oh, hold your thought, young man. I'll return in a moment. Who is it? Oh, close your lamp, Dr. Knox. Quick, man, who is it? Bart, for Canhaya. And the teacher. Oh, inside. Quickly. Eh? Well, what have you? You made us suggest the last time we were here to deliver, Doctor. Well, well. Show him. Aye. How close your lamp when you look what we've brought you. Good. Good. Twenty pounds good. That good? Yeah. Twenty pounds. Here. Okay. What? What's the matter, Doctor? Why is her hand clenched so tightly? Why, I, I'm sure, sir, that... Well, let's have a look. Uh, let's on... tighten. There. Hmm. Two coppers. I wonder. You wonder what, Doctor? Such a pretty she is. Why to be clenching so tight to two coppers in her hand? Why, I wonder that too. Oh, yes, so do I. I have a guest. Good evening, gentlemen. Young sir, I believe you're holding a thought. What is it? Eventually, it stopped raining, and life went on in the alleys of Edinburgh, and over the counters and stalls, the second-hand things were bartered for, became necessities for a time, and were bartered again. And from these alleys... Sixteen people known disappeared. Sixteen people to whom death, too, was somehow secondhand, having known dying every day of their existence. One of them... Twenty pounds life Give the boy a copper, Mr. Hare. Aye. Here. Catch. Monkey. <laughs> now... Come along, and I'll cobble you a pair of shoes, lad. Oh, I, I, I don't... Uh... Oh, for free, lad. For free. Funky, funky. And two days later, around the corner and down the street and up a hall and through a gate and up a walk and through a door. Now, if you'll come closer, young doctors, you will see how an incision from the umbilicus to this point, the sternum... Then laterally... Dr. To... Knox. A moment, please, sir, and I'll answer the question. Such an incision made with... Uh, Dr. Knox. Oh, such insistence. Very well. Not very well at all, however. I I'm sure this boy has been murdered. Murdered? Two nights ago, I saw this boy. He was singing a song in Tanner's Close. Tanner's Close? That garbage scow? This boy is known as Jamie. 
I know, for I spoke with him. And he sang a song for me. And he was well. And, sir? Aye? There is a bruise here. Come, look close here. At his throat. Surely that is a bruise. Young sir, what are you after? So much talk of how bodies are obtained for dissection. Therefore... Young sir, what are you after? Surely you would not condone murder as a source of supply. Young sir, you have not answered my question. When I have asked you, what are you after? I mean, is it to become a physician? Yes, sir. And a healer? Yes, sir. And knowledgeable in your profession? Yes, sir. Then admit, sir, that the study of the human body is a prime requisite. Of course. Return to your place, sir. Yes, sir. The incision I now make from the umbilicus toward this point on the sternum and then laterally. Come see. Where? I've got a place. Rags. A big bag full. I'll come to look. Then come. Come. A bit. Grace! Grace! This be my son-in-law, gents. Mind the stall, Grace. I'll go with these gents to buy. Where be this place? In Tanner's Close, near the end. Near the pigsty? Aye. Oh, love me. How can you live there? Some say it is difficult, Granny. Come, come. Speak up, son. My Mimsy. Who be you? I'm Gray, Mimsy's son-in-law. Mimsy, who you took last night. Ah. Who you took last night to Selty. She did not return. All the night long awaited. Why, lad? Why... Where is she? She's gone. I gone. To, to where did my Mimsy go? Gentle lad, gentle. Away with your hand. Such a big lad. Such a big... What's that? Now, lad, now. Mimsy's shawl. A mistake, lad. Mimsy's shawl. And here, the shirt of her. And blood. Now, gentle lad, uh, now here, uh, take a fiver and... Blood, take... blood. All these rags. Mimsy! Hold him back, I'll get me a knife. Here's Mimsy, uh, under the rags is Mimsy. Please, 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 please. The boy finally got himself understood by the police. They came then to Tanner's Close and found Mimsy. Then they found Burke and Hare. Then they were asked if they had anything to do with Mimsy's death. I done it. And to 17 others? Just like that. Confessed. 
For some reason that history makes obscure or just doesn't like to talk about, Hare was let free. Burke, however, suffered the last penalty of the law. He was brought to the gibbet, his heart pounding. The rope was placed about his neck. And his body was delivered to Dr. Monroe's academy, where it was dissected by young sirs on their way to becoming doctors. And Dr. Knox, and Dr. Knox, buyer of murdered men, he fled from scandal and disappeared. But one source has it that he was seen some ten years later walking the narrow street in Edinburgh called Tanner's Close, walking northward toward the pigsty. just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about next week's crime classic. Burke and Hare, tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. In tonight's story, Jack Crucian was heard as Mr. Burke, and Jay Novello as Mr. Hare. Featured in tonight's cast were William Johnstone, Jeanette Nolan, Charles Davis, Betty Harford, and Richard Peel. Bob Lamont speaking. And here again is Thomas Highland. Next week, Washington, D.C., on the night of April 14th, 1865. My report to you will be on the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> Radio's 21st Precinct has moved to a new neighborhood. Follow the exciting work of Captain Kennelly and his 21st Precinct every Friday night on most of these same stations starting this Friday. Don't miss the gripping case of the LD number 80, revealing a great human story behind an elderly man's application for a gun permit on this Friday's 21st Precinct program. America listens most to the CBS radio network. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Wow. That was my mistake. I, I accidentally, uh, I don't know how I played the wrong file, but it did. Well, it doesn't matter. I mean, but if you want. Well, huh? I've got I've got the Allsup family queued up, so if you want to play that one, I could be contrary and say play the Strawberry, but I won't. No, <laughs> <I'm> just, <laughs> uh, uh, but no, sure. You go ahead and play the Allsup family. Get him over with. Yeah, I'm also interested in this story to see what it's about because. Uh, 
it kind of seems almost antiquity. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's kind of bizarre, but it's it's to me it's just okay. But anyway, you see for yourself. I didn't realize grave robbing was such a big hit. <laughs> uh, you know, me me either. But you know, I seriously though, there have been times that I've thought about donating my body to medical science because uh, one thing they could use it, and you know, I don't really have any family left that would care. So, because the ones I have left are just about my age, so by the time I die, they'll probably be going too. So, right. <laughs> but anyway, I don't know. I haven't really decided, but. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Well, hopefully. Um, so I mean, the, you and Annabelle wouldn't be coming to coming to my grave, so you know. Well, I don't know. It depends on where the funeral is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's we'll go we'll go to the Ossop family or however you say that. Yeah. Here you go, folks. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland with another true story of crime. Listen. The sound you hear is that of a grave being dug on a hillside in a lonely section of England in the 17th century. And that was English thunder of the era. And that, a soft English drizzle. Water, earth, sky, elementals. Surrounding, James Alsop. Money clipper, highwayman, father-in-law, grave digger. It'll take him about another hour to finish, and about another hour to give it a corpse. For in that time, James Alsop will add murder to his other attributes. And tonight, my report to you on the Allsop family, how it diminished and grew again. Crime Classics, a new series of true crime stories from the records and newspapers of every land from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now once again, Mr. Thomas Highland. And the place, Ham, a small village about four miles from London, situated in the county of Essex. Now, the month is March, at the tail end of a wild winter. A winter of great snows, much poverty, and much returning to the earth of the folk of Ham, young and old. Never was there such a winter within the memory of what villages were left alive. And now that the snows had melted and the first warmth blew across the heath and into cold stone rooms, there was stirring among the hamlings who had survived. Man and wife smiled on each other where yesterday had been chill. Life must go on. 
But what of those whom the ravages of the season and starvation had made lonely? What of, say, a widow? What of, say, widow Ursula, who lost her husband to the wild dogs two days after Christmas? What of her? Well, let's see. You be lonely, are you, widow? I... Ah, it was a cruel thing has happened to your husband. Cruel? Then now it is the springtime. Aye, and March is soft on the moors. April is a good time for marrying, widow. When I married last, it wasn't April. It was April after a soft winter when my husband built this house that we married. It was a good marriage. April is soon, and you should have another husband. You're a widow of good credit and competent estate, and you make a young man a comely bundle. Teddy? Ah, you're welcome, widow Ursula. Comely bundle indeed. How long has it been since your wife passed on, James, also? Uh, six years come next Bloomsbury Day. I heard she was a shrew. A witch, a shrew, a gollygog. But a woman of fervor, and she fruited me with two sons. Aye, I have seen the younger one. They said to me the widow Ursula had looked upon him. I, a robust lad, sinewy. Uh, will you marry my son? What do you call him? Christopher. Christopher. A likely name for April. Your Ursula will make a likely bride. Aye. Morning. Father, what did the widow say? Will she marry my brother? She will. To us, William. Aye. So, my brother Christopher will take a bride. Your brother is not like us. He needs a woman to take care of him. He is a dope, perhaps. And cowardly. Maybe. For instance, he needs his father to propose for him. He has a shy manner. Cowardly. For instance, down there, where the carriage will roll soon. Would he have the courage to stop it and point a knife and demand money or a life and mean it? No. Not Christopher. There. Around the hill's curve. The carriage. Father. Aye. son William galloped down the hillside, donned masks, and stopped the carriage. And with a well-a-day and cocked pistols, they robbed the driver and the passenger. History records that the passenger, as coincidence would have it, was none other than Dame Maggie Chavez, who, it may be assumed, was even then on the first leg of her mad dash to Lisbon. Gallants that they were, the highwaymen took from the lady only her gold coins. Her jewelry, the famous mementos from the Viscount of Gloucester, was not touched. Uh, this might have been, however, because of the hiding places for gems that the dame is famous for. And with another well-a-day, James Alsop and William rode down to the town of Ham, and to home, and to their workshop. Here, they divested themselves of garments necessary to robbing on the road, placed them in a trunk, took out a pair of shears, and went to work. Uh, this year's mintage is harder than last year's. Work, meaning clipping off small edges of the gold coins. 
Decreasing the diameter, in other words, without decreasing the face value. So, when you were finished, you had the original gold coins and gold clippings as a bonus. Else the shears are dulled. Else you, father, are growing older <laughs> and weaker. Aye. 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 I said it. Did you now? What do you say now? But you have too much blood in your mouth, son William. I... I made a jest. I asked your pardon. Get you... back to work. There's a pile of sovereigns on the table to be clipped down. Clippings taken to London to be sold. Aye. Be it? Christopher. Come in, son. Hello, son. Hello, father. Hello, William. Mm. Did the day go well for you, son? I dreamed how it would be to take a wife. <laughs> you like the taste of blood, William? I dreamed how it would be to take a wife. Oh, and it was a fine dream. Mm, yeah, I spoke to the widow Ursula. And asked her what I told you, father? I... Will she have me? In April. I'm grateful to you. You're a good son, Christopher. You make your father proud. Did you have a good day on the road, father? No, that's the... A carriage with a rich lady. Ah, and much gold, I see. One thing, son. When you're with wife, no talk of this and what happens on the road. Not a whisper on it. Not a whisper. Yeah. We have to do much clipping, your brother and I. Take a handful of coins, lad. Buy some things for April. When it came, it was the mildest April in years, and the good townsfolk of Ham wore homespun linen of most feathery weight for the nuptials. The widow Ursula to Christopher Alsop. There was much gaiety. Laughter spilled, as did the cooling spiced mead. And, as sometimes happens at such festivals, a group of the younger set thought they spied a druid. And ran off into the woods to give a chase. But the older set, the ones who had already chased their druids, stayed. And they smiled kindly upon the bride Ursula as she took the hand of Christopher and led him into the warm stone cottage. My husband. My bride. You don't swear the Saraband husband. Do you not have a good word for my jig? In the Saraband, you whirled and lifted me high. You are comely, bride Ursula. You are young and handsome. I love thee. And you will gentle me and be ardent. I. And I to you. Christopher. I. Your father is rich. He is. He has told me I do not need to employ myself at anything for a year as a wedding gift, if I wish it. Oh, he must be very rich then. What does he do for his riches? I cannot say. But you are husband. Then come to me. Yes. in April and in May when the broom was on the sedge. Come, dearie. 
Tell your wife what your daddy dear does for his riches. And in June, when the drone bee danced for its queen. If you do not tell me, dearie, I shall be unhappy. And you shall be sorry. And for the rest of the summer, love and curiosity and a Christopher who wouldn't talk about his father. But in September, when the first leaf dropped... Now, what does he do, your father? Come here. I will not. Bride. Wife, now. And I ask you, what does your father do for his riches? <sighs> what curiosity is yours, Ursula? And who would not be curious? The way your father is hardly home, nor your brother... The way they ride the road so often and after lock themselves in that room. What do they there? And why am I not permitted there in their workroom? And why does your brother journey to London so often? Come here. When you will answer me, not before. I'll not answer you. I'll tell you this only. It is September and you have become a shrew. You will rue the day you called me that name. You will rue it. She needs to know what we do, you and I. So she would gossip about it. But we are oil women and money clippers. She would gossip and the law would hear of it and we would jig from our gallows. It grieves me. It would be a, a terrible thing. Hello, father-in-law, brother-in-law. I had never been here before. In the workshop before. I thought to clean it. To dust a bit. What are these clippers for? Get out of here. Get out of here before I kill you. She will gossip, Father. Aye. And the law will hear of it. Aye. The gallows. And death. Not for us. To work, William. And they clipped a pile of sovereigns, and William took the clippings to London Town. And the rest of the night, James Alsop sat with his thoughts. In the false dawn, he came to a conclusion. His daughter-in-law had to go for good.
1670s. It was a mess. First of all, the English didn't like the Dutch, and the Dutch felt the same about the English, and they were constantly sending each other's frigates to the bottom. The King of England was Charles II, famed for being a member of the Stuart family, for marrying with Catherine Berganza, and for peeling the oranges of one Nell Gwynn. It was, as I have indicated, a yeasty time, foment everywhere. Colonists were going off in every which direction, to America, to India, and to the Caribbees. It was the decade, too, of the great Feathergill hopes, and it was the decade of plague and fire. Let's look again at a corner of it. The year, 1673. And the place, the village of Ham, and a woman named Ursula, walking through a meadow at dusk. you talking about? I saw the woman Ursula walking through the meadow, as you said she would be. And did you kill her, as I said you should do? I am not sure. Therefore... Therefore what? I am willing to take but half the amount of money which you promised me. I promise you a fee, assassin, for the killing of Ursula. I hired your sword for a death. No half payments for work not completed. There's no fault of mine. I stuck her with my sword, but she moved quickly away. Then I saw some people who were coming... Attracted by her cry. And my son, William, who sent you to me from London, said you were the finest of assassins. Another day and I'll try again. Go back to London. My pay. I... <laughs> that be your pay, a knock about the head. What you deserve. I get you back to London. who saw the attack said a rider in a cloak and mask chased her about the meadow with a sword. For what reason? For what reason I cannot conceive? Ooh, a mystery. Who would want to do murder on such a fine woman? Uh, yesterday you called her a witch. Aye, uh, even worse. But I did not mean it. Mm. As I said, what has happened? A mystery. Who would want to kill her? Oh, your wife is a provoking woman. She walks alone in the meadow with dust. Well, if she ever recovers, I will tell her to do so no more. Mm. While I'm gone for the surgeon in Yorkshire, you will take care of my wife, Father. Aye, that I will. I'll watch over your wife. Yorkshire. And what with William in London selling coin clippings, James Alsop was left in his house with Ursula, his daughter-in-law. September 9th, and the gathering storm. 
And this... What? What? Ursula. Thirsty. As a body is wont to get when it has been stabbed. What? And the man who could slake her thirst moves. But not toward Ursula. Toward the tool shed for a shovel. Then toward the hill. You know why. That's right. To dig a grave. And while he was digging, you remember it started to rain. And James Alsop lifted his mouth to it because the body is wont to get thirsty when it is digging a grave. But Alsop finished his task, took Shovel back to Tool House, and did what quite a few grave diggers do, even to this day. Marky, another. Good evening, Judy. By a hollyhock. Oh, by one. <laughs> You're a father and you keep your rock. Wear it yourself. You may finish on me if you like. <laughs> Ox become you. I have only two more to sell, but I have nothing to do. And no one to sing my song to. Oh, tonight I'm busy, Judy. With in such a storm. To help my daughter-in-law on a journey. A journey to where? To her cousin in Scotland. Oh, if I had a drink, Mr. Alsop, I would drink to a safe return. Ah, barkeep. Three drinks. One for me, one for the lady, and for yourself, barkeep. Yeah. Well, now we will drink to the safe journey and the safe return of my daughter-in-law, Ursula, who goes to visit her cousin in Scotland and who probably will not return for a year or so. Victim through big storm to grave. A few more details. 
Darkness torn apart by lightning. Silences shattered by thunder. And the earth, a sea of mud. It was perhaps 300 yards to the hillside. And when James Alsop got there, the grave he had dug was gone. Washed away. So, what we've got now is the same pastoral scene. In reverse. Cutthroat carrying victim through big storm back to scene of crime. Cutthroat in a quandary? Mm, the plan was to bury you neatly, Ursula. Now what? Proving that things gang after glee. Yeah. I told everyone you were going for a visit. The question. What shall I do with you? Seeking the answer. The answer? Not quite. This time the answer, change everybody into warm, dry clothes. <laughs> and having done this, the stroke of genius. Remove the glass from a window frame into the room, hide it, and set up a cry. Murder! Murder most foul! Help! Thieves of common made murder! Help! Help! And killed your poor daughter-in-law. Yesterday, a man tried to do it while she walked the meadow. I've heard. And now you succeeded. I heard a cry from Ursula. I came quick to her, but only in time to see her attacker flee. Flee? How? Through the window, sir. Which window? That one. That one? With no glass in it? Of course, that one. And you're sure of it? Aye. Mm. Come here. Aye. If the thief and murderer escaped through this window, how did he get through the cobweb which covers the opening? Sir? Stretched across the window frame is a cobweb, as you see. From side to side, so... From top to bottom, so. Sir. Then how did this thief of yours get through it? Sir. You're under arrest, James Alsop. Arrest? For the murder of your daughter-in-law. Charlie? The chains. at Colchester Jail. His sons, William and Christopher, were not to be located. Justice was swift and sure. James Alsop was sentenced and led to the gallows. And as he mounted them, a thing happened. Wait! Wait! In the name of the king! Do not hang that man. A messenger with good news, especially if your name was James Alsop of Ham in the year 1673, and the hangman had just indicated that you stick your neck in a noose. New evidence from London. By Gavin. The man who calls himself Topham says he can prove that James Alsop is no murderer. 
He saw a thief leave the place of murder through the door. Ah, that's the way it was. I forgot. Bring down the accused from the gibbet. Mr. Topham from London turned out to be none other than the missing William Alsop, son of James. He could have stayed in London, safe and alive, so he must have loved his father dearly to have taken such a chance. But the only way he changed history was this. Christopher? Well, he had heard what happened to his wife, so asked himself, why return to Ham? He stayed in Yorkshire, where he met the widow Patricia. She was comely, and the next April they were wed. She made puddings and was an uncurious woman. They lived long and happily, and gave to the world eight Alsops. <laughs> family. Tonight's crime classic was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. In tonight's story, Ben Wright was heard as James. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. Featured in the cast were Herb Butterfield, Ellen Morgan, Betty Harford, Terry Kilburn, Richard Peel, and Raymond Lawrence. Roy Rowan speaking. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Wow. That was different. (laughs) That had to be the craziest story I've ever heard. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Gosh. I mean, some of these things are stranger than fiction, honestly. I'm telling you. <laughs> but it also shows how 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 evil people can be. Yeah. I mean, just for, well, I mean, I have to admit, gold coins are kind of expensive, or at least they were. But still, I mean, that's got to be weird. Oh, I've come to a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to donate my body to medical science. I'm going to move. Um, I'm going to be buried in Canada. That way you and Annabelle and Aaliyah can come and put flowers on my grave every now and then. So you're not going to. Yeah, I'm not. That's right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but I think I think you should get cremated, though, because 
God forbid we should have an uh, uh, a zombie apocalypse. Uh, yeah, I don't well, want to have to shoot you in the head. Well, you know, it would be it would it would be kind of um, uh, exciting to see what happened to a zombie being shot in the head. <laughs> True, except, except <laughs> you'd be on the receiving end of that shot. Well, yeah, but you know, at least I'd still see what happened. <laughs> yes, that's very true. Very true. Oh, guys, we have fun here. I think we're down to the strawberry, aren't we? Yes, we are, ma'am. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so I hope y'all like what I picked. I, I, I thought some of the older folks might have memories of the Grand Ole Opry as I do. So I picked a show from um, the Grand Ole Opry when it was on the radio. And um, it's that old summer's gone. Summer's and gone and winter's coming. coming on or winter's a coming or something <laughs> like that. But anyway, um, here you go. We'll see you after it's over. From Nashville, Tennessee, we present the Grand Ole Opry. Here with you, and I have not, but we're fixing to get started right here. 
with a couple of young dressed-up fellas tonight. Oh, I'll tell you, they look something handsome tonight. Lonzo and Oscar, let's give them a hand. Thank you so much. Thank you a lot. Oh, we're glad to be at the Grand Ole Opera tonight. And we've got a brand new song for you folks. This is our first number two song in several years. And we picked on a good one. Roy Drusky's got this one out. He called his, from now on, all of my friends are going to be strangers. We call ours fingers. We hope you like our words to it. Let's try it. Thank you very much, and they'll be back a little bit later. Right now, it's a real pleasure to have uh, a real South Carolina, or I should say a Carolinian girl. I don't know if she's from South Carolina or North Carolina, but she's been a big hit in the big city. And let's make Miss Big City Margie Bowes welcome out here with her big number right now, Miss Margie Bowes. (laughs) 
distinct pleasure to introduce the one of the best-dressed men on the Grand Ole Opry. And anybody in political life naturally has to be well-dressed. Will you welcome the mayor of Bulls Gap, Tennessee, Archie Campbell. Will you give him a hand? Thank you, Uh, You little lady, where in the world have you been? I understand we've got a whole bunch of people here from Memphis tonight. Where are you folks at? You can always tell anybody from Memphis. Of course, you can't tell them much. <laughs> hey, I, I want you, Dave, I haven't told anybody this, but I want to announce it here and for the Grand Ole Opry audience and everybody. Something happened to me. We had. We had a blessed event at our house last night. Oh, Archie, that's wonderful. That's just great. Just great. Uh, my mother-in-law went home. I guess I shouldn't complain, though, about her staying around because we've been married 20 years, Dave. Mm-hmm. 20 years, and she's only been to visit us one time. Well, that's very thoughtful of her. Right? She came the day we got married, and she finally left last night. You know, it's aggravating, though, having a mother-in-law with you on your honeymoon. Well, now, <laughs> I guess uh, I take it, Arch, that uh, you don't care for your mother-in-law. Well, you're getting awful close. Uh, Arch, you remember this. If it wasn't for your mother-in-law, you wouldn't have your wife. That's another good reason, too. <laughs> Arch, I don't believe that you treat your wife right. You're not going to answer what she tells me all the time. That's right. It, yeah? it's, remember that it's the little things that count, Arch. Is that right? The little things that count. Maybe I'm leaving that out, baby. Yeah, now, last week, I was away, yeah. and I sent my wife a check for a thousand kisses. Oh, I know. Boy, you got a beautiful wife. She told me about yeah, that. Yeah, I sent her a check for a thousand kisses. Yeah, he did that. That was nice. Yes, it was. I cashed it. Oh. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha. 
Arch, I got a real confession to make to you. Yeah? Women are my greatest problem. Well, that's everybody's problem. Well, last night, no, I've got a special problem. Last night, I had a date with Jane Mansfield. The night before, it was Anne Margaret. The night before that, it was Gene Crane. Nothing but movie stars. Well, what's your problem? Nothing but movie stars. I'm getting in a rut. Well, move over. I'm getting in there with you. (laughs) Hey, while we're talking about women, I hate to bring this up and break the trend of thought, but you see this girl sitting right down there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she keeps looking at you. Do you know her? I, I, she looks like Helen Green. Yeah, but she looks pretty good in white. Arch. Arch. <laughs> Let's change the subject, all right? <laughs> Arch, did your, did your brother ever get married? No, he's not married yet, but we ain't going to be able to stop him. He's got it on his mind, brother. Yeah. It's going to happen. Of course, it's fine, boy. I hate to see him go wrong, but... Nothing you can do about it. Me and the boys got together the other night and gave the bride a shower. You and the fellas gave the bride a shower? Yeah. I brought the soap. And... <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't mind the soap and water so much, but that steel wool cut her up pretty bad. I gotta go, Dave, but before I go, I wanna leave you folks with a little poem. I always recite a poem just before I leave. Jack and Jill fell down the hill. Now that's a stunt that's risky. If water did that for them, I think I'll stick to whiskey. The mayor of Bulls Gap, Tennessee, Archie Campbell. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. You know, we just found out a few minutes ago that one of the top 50 pop songs in the country is a tune called Send Me the Pillow You Dream On, recorded by Dean Martin. It was written back in 1948 by our star, Hank Lachlan. It's been recorded by many, many people. Here's the original singing that great tune, Send Me the Pillow You Dream On, Hank Lachlan.
Hank Rockland to introduce our next guest. Hank, are you ready for the introduction? Yes, I am. Thank you, Dave. We, uh, we've got him here somewhere. I was looking for him. Uh, we want, we've got a young man on our show here uh, by the name of Jack Scott. Where's Jack? Is he out here tonight? Well, this is, uh, uh, this is the part right here where, uh, we... <laughs> Wait at the Grand Ole Opry here and... Uh... Let me come to the rescue and tell you that Lonzo and Oscar are standing in the wings, and I'll find out what happened to Jack Scott, all right? Now, let's get them back out here. I, there's two good-looking boys, Lonzo and Oscar. Let's get them Lonzo back and out. Oscar, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, Lonzo. Thank you again, Mr. Hank. We'd, we'd like to do the other side of our new Nugget record that's coming out here in a few days, and the title of this one is Rip Snort. So, Oscar, I'll tell you what, I'll be Rip. I'll be Snort. You be Snort. All right, we'll just sing the song. Right. <laughs> hey, let her go, man. Well, we come from the mountains in Nashville, Tennessee. Our guitar picking daddy went down in history. So we thought we'd try our hand at things just for the sport. Hi there, friends. My name is Rip. <laughs> My name is Snort. We crawled aboard a Greyhound bus with guitars in our hands. We grabbed the road. They all come to see us off. Everything was looking grand. We traveled for about three days. City life looked good. Rip and Snort, they're going to make headlines. Here in Hollywood. That's my guitar picking that. Well, if we don't put a pick in that thing, it'll never get well. Wait a minute. That thing again. Wait a minute. All right, let's All right, here she comes. Now, here it comes. Here we go. We found a high-fi studio and then got through the door. Soon they heard the sound of our feet slapping on the floor. The more they clapped, the more we picked. Happy as could be. Say there, Rip, this ain't much different than them hills there in Tennessee. All right, say it again. Hey, Lon Boy, is that your guitar picking daddy again? Yeah, but let's don't talk about him no more. He's already famous. Yeah, 
gonna spend some of that money we're gonna make. Make the commercial fair to yeah. yeah. Thank you, Lonzo and Oscar. I believe we've rounded up this young man, and uh, he's going to come out and do his new RCA record now. I don't believe in tea leaves. Here's Jack Scott with us. Last night, I dreamed I lost you And cried all night till dawn My dream came true Last night I dreamed He held you And kissed You tenderly But I don't Believe In leaves But oh night when we doubled last June. Your friend said he'd tell my fortune. And here's what he said to me. That night he now belongs to you. I don't believe in tea leaves, but he now belongs to you. Thank you, Jack Scott. Right now, let's bring back Miss Margie Bowes, and she's going to sing Overnight. I can change the way I look 
Country music, Roy Acuff. Take that night train to Memphis. Take that night train to Memphis. When you arrive at the station, I'll be right there to meet you. I'll be right there to meet you. So don't turn down my invitation. Hallelujah. Shout hallelujah all the way. 
take that night train to Memphis. Oh, how I'm longing to see you. Leave at 3.57, arrive at 11, then I'll be shouting hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. hallelujah. We'll be shouting hallelujah all the day. Oh, we'll have a jubilee down in Memphis, Tennessee, and we'll shout hallelujah all the day. I'm not kidding, I'm not joking. I'll soon be with my girl and open. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Shouting hallelujah all the day. Oh, we'll have a jubilee down in Memphis, Tennessee. And you shout hallelujah all the way. very much and you people here in the Grand Ole Opera House, thank you for coming to visit us. These people are taking the microphone over here at this time, friends, when you see this boy with the mandolin, you know that he is the, I would like to say, the granddaddy of, of bluegrass, but he is actually the boy that started the bluegrass music here at WSM. Here is Bill Monroe with his bluegrass boy. All right, thank you, Roy, and we'd like to do the number title, Mary at the Home Place. Gave my wedding to a poor boy 
With those I ranked up on your back In my life way back in Georgia With Mary Dear friends and neighbors, is a very happy little family, and we're happy that we have them on the Grand Ole Opry, and so is RCA Victor very happy with them, because they are fine recording artists, good entertainers. Jim Edwards, Maxine, and Bonnie Brown, let's make them welcome, will you? Hi, Bonnie. Thank you all. You did a great job. They are lovely people. We're proud of them. Here are the old timers that's around the Grand Ole Opry House. I hope that I can continue for many years to say here they are. I can remember when Sam McGee was a young wrestler back down in the days when we when we first started touring. Mississippi wrestler. But he and Kurt and Arthur Smith and some of them gone big time on us now. They go up in New York and entertain the people up there, and they love them up there. They, they just entertained about 
1500 the other night. Where were you, Kurt, at that place? We was in New York City one night and in Boston one night uh-huh. and in Philadelphia one night. Well, you did it. I know that from, I read the, uh, the articles on you and you did a great job. And Thank I know you. you'll be going back. The boy at my right over here is Doris Macon. That's Uncle Dave Macon's son, Doris. We're proud of him. He's a fine boy, too. <laughs> Come up to the microphone here. Well, McGee, tell him who these this boys This is Claude Lampler right Claude here. Lampley with the banjo. With the banjo. Tommy Lefew with the mandolin. Tommy Lefew with the mandolin. And my little brother Sam with the guitar. And who's the boy with the bass? Hubert Gregory on the bass. Hubert Gregory on the bass. These boys have been here a long time. Make them welcome. This is Kurt McGee going to do the fifth. <laughs> Ben Smathers and the Stony Mountain Cloggers doing the dancing over there. They come down from Asheville, North Carolina, the city in the sky. They dance. They're good dancers. Here is the number that, well, it always cost me to do this number. I got to hire an extra man to blow the whistle. That's only Wheeler. He did it on the recording and on when we recorded for the Hickory people, and the number is doing real fine. And thanks to you disc jockeys out there for playing it. Only let's do them the freight train blues, will you? Start the whistle. In a boomer shack Just a little shanty by the railroad track The humming of the drivers was my lullaby When a freight train whistle taught me how to ride I got the freight train blue Lordy, lordy, lordy Got them in the bottom of my rambling shoe. When the whistle blows 
gotta go. Oh, Lordy, I guess I'm never gonna lose the freight train blue. Now my daddy was a farmer, now my mom was dear. She was the only daughter of an engineer. Sweetie loved the brakeman, now it ain't no joke, but it's a shame the way she kept that good man grow. She records for Star Day. Make her welcome, will you?
Thank you. I guess she's the prettiest Smoky Mountain boy we've got. <laughs> Back up, Lightning, and let, let the old-timer get in here. Here is country music on the banjo when he played. Did you hear about the big killing out in Madison last night, Roy? No, I didn't, Oz. There was a big killing out there last night. What happened? There was a man went home and found another man there with his wife. He took his forty-four out and shot and killed him dead right in the middle of the That's floor. That's a terrible thing to happen. It was terrible, Roy, but it could have been a lot worse. I don't see how. If it had been the night before, it had been me. <laughs> That's the truth if I ever told it, right? <laughs> Ain't I'm a mess? the bluegrass boys again. Bill, what you gonna play? All right, a number that we've had some requests for entitled, I gotta travel on. I've laid around and I played around this old town too long. And I don't know what's going on. Yes, when it's coming on. I played around and I played around this old town too long. And I feel like I've gotta travel on. I sure been police right now to me. Right now I 
love right to Johnny, but Johnny can't come home. Johnny can't come home. No, Johnny can't come home. Love right to Johnny, but Johnny can't come home. Johnny has been on the same day too long. Have a little round and play around this old town too long. Summer's almost gone, yes, when it's coming on. I've laid around and I've played around in old town too long, and I feel like I've got to drive along. Wanna see my honey? Wanna see her bad? Wanna see her bad? Oh, I wanna see her bad. Let's get the Smoky Mountain boys all around. Short Jackson over here with his showbud instrument. He builds these instruments. Does a good job. This boy next to him here is uh, uh, Steve Chapman. And the boy back of me here is Jimmy Fox. These boys haven't had a chance to be introduced tonight. They're my gang, and I want people to know them. I'm proud of them. Let's sing our verse, of course, of I'll Fly Away. Take it off, somebody. Will you? Some glad morning when this life is over. for the drums. And now, Jimmy Newman! I've got my heart scratched up A good night's sleep and my dancing slippers on Picking up where I left off When loving you went wrong You'll notice I'm all smiles again And out of hibernation Gonna hit those mullet lanes again I'm back
again next week for the tops in country music and entertainment on the Grand Ole Opry. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Wow. That was that was a lot of uh country for me. <laughs> uh we seem to be having a problem with Monica's feed. <gasps> Excuse me. For some reason she's not coming in on the recording. <clears throat> Excuse me. So as the dutiful tech guy, I'm going to have to figure out what's going on behind the scenes. And I will end the program for today. Uh, again, thank you for joining us on Arts. Make sure you tune in tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific for the Meet Me series. 
where we'll be talking to Melissa Stores Wapshaw. So uh, tune in for that. And of course, tune in on set on Tuesdays for This Accessible Life with Victor Marquez. And um, you guys have a good week, and we will see you next week, folks. Hope you enjoyed the, the entertainment.